Welcome to the Alienist Angel of Darkness recap podcast. My name is Alex, and I have not read Caleb Carr's The Angel of Darkness. And my name is Nick, and I have read Caleb Carr's The Angel of Darkness. Today we will be discussing the entirety of Season 2 of the TNT series and potentially some of the book, so pause this and go catch up on the show and the book before you listen to the rest of the episode. Unless you don't care about book spoilers, in which case, stay tuned in. You can find more of our episodes at thealienist.tv, and you can also send feedback to feedback at thealienist.tv to tell us what you think of our podcast. If you enjoy this show or any other show on the Midwest Podcast Network, please consider heading over to mpn.bz slash Patreon or patreon.com slash MidwestPodNet and pledge as little as a dollar a month to make our network even better. Special thanks to Jason K. and Tom Z. who have pledged at the level of $10 per month. Speaking of the other shows on the Midwest Podcast Network, check out Horror Movie Yearbook's latest episode discussing Pumpkinhead, as well as the Midwest Game Nerds, where we talked about Microsoft Flight Simulator and Fall Guys. <sighs> Nick, how are you doing? You know, I'm doing all right. I mean, no, I'm doing well. Like, it's all perspective these days, right? And I think all things considered, doing pretty well. Yeah. How about I you? That. I'm doing pretty well as well. And uh, Well, well, well. Yeah. Uh, but no, things are, things are good. It's been a busy couple of weeks for, for both of us, really. My work's been yes. pretty crazy. Yours has been crazier, um, by the nature of the beast, but, uh, we are yep. here and we are here to discuss the season of the alienist about two weeks out. So, uh, we heard from several listeners whose, uh, emails and messages I will get to shortly but before we get to that i just wanted to kind of think what or, or or ask you what did you how do you feel about the season now that two weeks have passed has it stuck with you at all um are, are you still happy with it or were there things that kind of came up as you thought about it a little bit have you been thinking about it anyway that type of stuff well i have been thinking about it i would love to be able to say that i've spent these two weeks continuing my reread and reflecting and thinking about the show. But as you said, it's been so busy, Mm -hmm. both personally and professionally, that it's been hard to watch anything or read anything uh, in the last few weeks. So, uh, unfortunately, I haven't had the most time to continue to think about it, but it has been on my mind, especially the last probably two episodes or so. Uh, And Primarily, the stuff uh, regarding the relationship between Sarah and John, I think, is what really, for some reason, I kept turning over in my head because I spent so much of the season and the series really uh, so opposed to it, just uh, by by the very nature of it existing. I just thought, bah, I don't need that. And I still kind of feel that way, but I think what they did, I guess if it hadn't been for probably their performances, it wouldn't have worked as well for me. But for some reason, they both kind of sold me on it. And I was like, okay. Also, the writing of the series, just really improving the character of Sarah in general helped me buy into that idea more just because she's a little more three-dimensional and she's a little more fleshed out. Uh, She suddenly has more agency and I like it a lot. And I still really love the character in the books. She just isn't quite grown in the same direction. So uh, that those those are the the principal things that have kind of been in the forefront of my mind, as well as the Isaacsons. I think those are the big deviations. And uh, you know, I I just 
crap. I didn't think it would be relevant, so I didn't think about it. But I, I think I, this morning of all the, you know, coincidentally, I saw a tweet and I forgot who it was by, but they said something about it was a writer and they were talking about in the in the course of trying to adapt a story, your as an as a as the writer or the author, the responsibilities that come with trying to create an adaptation and how and basically how it's a tightrope walk of being true to the original material while also bringing it into the new medium that you're adapting it to, while also I think potentially expanding upon some of the themes and characters and ideas that might be present in the original text, but you want to bring more to the forefront or build upon. And I think that those kind of thoughts are really important when watching really any anything that's an adaptation, but particularly this series, because season one perhaps suffered a bit by trying to stay a little too slavishly devoted to the original material, but not doing it in a way that was exciting. And it was hard because the first season, they they did stick really closely to a lot of the books. They just didn't do it that well. Mm-hmm. And perhaps it would have been a more engaging season had they gone a little further out into the deep end and tried some stuff that wasn't quite so close to the books. Because if you're just going to take... If the 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 text is like just like a piece of wood and you're just going to chip away at it, but you're not going to really add shape in any different direction. You're just cutting away a lot of what's there without shaping it into something a little more interesting. Yeah. Or focusing it in a certain direction. You're just cutting the big piece of wood into a smaller piece of wood and you're not making like a carving out of it. And season two, I think did that a lot more successfully. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure who, because I haven't done the research, but who to really credit that to, uh, but I, I think season two was was really good. And I I know that when I do either pick up uh, The Angel of Darkness from the beginning again, or if I do continue my reread, although I'm in the middle of another book series right now that's really good, so it might be a while. Uh, I'm going to view, I'm going to read it differently. And I think I'm going to read the first book about the same because the, you know, basically everything I just said about the first series. But the second book, I think, is really going to seem different in my eyes now. And I, I don't think it's it's going to suffer for it. And I don't think it's necessarily going to be better for it. But I think I'll be carrying the show in the back of my mind a lot more. Whereas I think when I'm reading the first book, I'll get lost in it and the show won't really come to mind. Other than the likenesses of the characters who I think I'll carry with me. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think uh, you know, as I've referenced in the past, we've touched on the nature of adaptation quite a bit between this show and uh, and Preacher as well, and and with yeah. with this show, I think it kind of makes sense in some cases where, like, if you want to start with the first book and keep things closer to normal to try and get the buy-in of of fans. That's one thing, but the fact that, like, number one, it was meant to be, like, a limited series, they didn't even know if they, they, it sounds like they didn't have any plans to do season two at the time, you know? That's, doesn't really track with, with the idea of getting buy-in, and then on top of that, like, the Alienist fan base, although great, isn't exactly vast or rabid, right? And so, like... I don't know how much you would be betraying people by trying to strike out and focus and, and, and at least kind of hone and enhance the themes like you were saying or the characters like they did and, and things like that. So mm-hmm. I think um, 
That's true. They don't have hundreds of thousands of angry trolls on Twitter calling them out like they do with every Marvel or Star Wars property by deviating even 1% off of the trajectory that they personally feel they are owed. 100%. That's just not going to happen about Alienist. Yeah. And, and and I think, but, but like you said, I do think season two, like to me, at least the impression that I've gained of the books through your knowledge of them, I don't feel like they stepped in any particular direction with any of the characters that's kind of taken them away from what they were in the books. I just think the feminism idea of Sarah being working for the police force in the 1890s was pretty forward, extremely forward in the 1890s, somewhat forward in 1995 when the book came out, and much less forward now, where, like, you know, we we like to think that women are empowered to work in jobs that they, that they maybe weren't once uh, allowed to, or th- things of that nature. Whether or not that's gotten better, I will leave to people of that gender who can speak to it much better than I could. But um, but it feels... It, I, I at least feel like they stayed true to what the spirit of Sarah's character is rather than, you know, taking it in a different direction for the sake of doing something completely different with it, right? Yeah, that's very true. And But, but this... I, I think the thing is, is that this whole production of season one and season two of the show are such a weird beast from kind of how it was born from the limited series aspect going through to doing a sequel to that limited series and things of that nature. It's just such a weird beast compared to any other quote unquote, quote unquote franchise that it's kind of hard to like measure it by the same metrics that you would any other adaptation, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think even the showrunner changed from season one to season two, if I recall correctly. Um, uh, Cause I think Jacob Verbruggen was at least, uh, he was a director. He was the director, but I think he was also the showrunner too. But either way, I don't want to speak too much to that, but I do think that is the case. And, and it just seems like anytime somebody new takes on a series like that in a show running direction, there's room for it to change for the better or the worse. And yep. so at least so far, I feel as though in season two, I like where they took this season. I've really grown to enjoy the characters. I feel like they all have more to sink their teeth into now. I do feel like Laszlo got a little bit of short shrift this season. Um, and, and that's kind of sad, seeing as how it is the alienist. It is kind of <laughs> his story, right, you would think? But at the same time, I like so much of what they did with Sarah that I like that she kind of took the center role in this season. Yeah. Um. So it, it uh, you know, the, I think there's good and bad, but I think overall the whole picture. I think I've walked away with things that I, I think I really enjoyed season two way more so than I even enjoyed season one, which I liked quite a bit. But yeah, I would agree absolutely. It's gone beyond me just wanting to write Luke Evans fan fiction, and <laughs> now I'm just enjoying the material being put in front of me with with regard to that. So um, that's that's growth. For the yes. for the for the positive right there for sure. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to bring up there were just kind of a few things, and I'm gonna try and see if I can think of them. I I meant to rent to write a lot of them down, but there were a lot of 
question marks that I kind of still had at the end of the season, and I kind of wanted to to sound off of you a little bit, at least in terms of um, with respect to like Doctor Marco. I feel mm-hmm. like Doctor Marco was set up, set up to be, even if he was a red herring, I thought he was set up to be more of a more of a chess piece this season than he ended up being. Um, you know, being at odds with Laszlo and eventually being the one that's going to oversee his investigation into his um his institute and 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 his practices and things of that you know do you feel the same way do you feel like he was made out to be more than he ended up being in the season or do you feel like that was really just a an adequate role for a red herring i kind of both i think he was i i think now he was definitely a red herring like that was his primary function in the series for those who hadn't read the books to say, okay, this is the guy, right? Like, we're just being upfront about it. And perhaps when I said that the killer is revealed very early in the books, uh, I may have tipped you or listeners who haven't read them into the direction thinking like, oh, here's Marco right up front. Mm. This must be the killer. This must be the guy. And uh, so I think that was kind of clever of them to kind of almost trick uh, sort of by by proxy trick people into thinking that he was the killer. But he, there was an interesting thing with this season where each of our three main leads is kind of presented with somebody who is kind of their equal and opposite. And, uh, you know, I keep picturing it in my mind. I'm a pretty visual thinker and I keep picturing it as like, um, and I'm no expert, so I won't be able to name it properly, but almost like a ball dance, like a ballroom dance where you've got, the three main characters here, you've got like Laszlo and John and Sarah. And the first season, they're all kind of dancing with each other. And they're going through this dance together. And then this season, they turn around and there's mm. three others on the outside that become their new partners. And the circle widens and the dance grows bigger. And for Laszlo, it's kind of split between Marco and um, Karen Karen, yeah, I wanted to call her Alice, but I don't know why. <laughs> Between Marco and Karen, they both kind of serve that role. Yeah. For Sarah, it's Libby. Mm-hmm. And for John, it's Hurst. Yep. And also a little larger than that, with Sarah, you've got the detective world. With Laszlo, you've got the psychiatry world. And with John, you've got the society world. And so you have these th- things in these people who are sort of the faces of these things pulling them in these directions. I guess for John, uh, Violet is kind of also in that role. And for Sarah, it's kind of her uh, her employees in that. So, you've got all these, these other four little groups and forces that are pulling these characters. So, it's really interesting watching them work out their relationships and their dynamics in the first season. And then they have to turn outward and face their growing and changing world and still maintain the dance in the middle, but also this larger one going on on the outside. And so with that in mind, I think Marco's role is both sort of a red herring, but also holding a mirror up to Laszlo and showing us how a guy like Marco is able to be successful and sort of respected and for his peers to kind of buy in on him and yet not Laszlo. And you watch it and as the viewer, you Laszlo's your protagonist. You're like, you know that he's good. Yeah. You know that he's well-intentioned and he's intelligent, but you get to see that from kind of the outside looking in of how he's sort of an outcast 
And this guy who's kind of a piece of shit gets to kind of walk around in that world freely and is admired and respected and lauded. And Laszlo's kind of on the outskirts. Yeah. But then again, so is John and so is Sarah. And so they sort of then turn back inward to their original dance partners and stick together. Yeah, it's like Marco, by function of his willingness to play ball with the high society, tell them what they want to hear and serve per- serve a purpose, albeit a terrible purpose of like right, yeah. dealing with mistresses and illegitimate children. It It's his buy-in to the high society, whereas Laszlo, I think, is still... Part of that, he's in that high society, but he's certainly not making that many friends. He's not, he's not, you know, somebody brings a child to his care, he's attacking the problem for what it is and not making the problem that the person bringing their child is potentially seeing, right? Right. And so they're, they're very good foils of each other and, and just kind of, yeah, I, I, I like what you're saying because it feels like this very... It certainly feels like the camera has pulled back on the entirety of kind of the universe that we're in in season two. Very intricately woven relationships that exist between the three main characters, as you said, and then like kind of their own individual worlds that all have different um, effects on how they act and they affect affect those things differently. And, And it's just a very it feels extremely well fleshed out, which is good. I just think, I don't know if, um, I think in that greater context, Marco makes a lot of sense and and, and maybe just my, maybe I just fell for the red herring so hard that I was like, there's gotta be more to this guy. So it kind of just feels like, like that note kind of got dropped for the season, but I, I, it's not like they did any, it's not like none of it made sense. I think, I think it all worked out in the end, but I just felt like. Maybe there's some unmined potential for Marco somewhere, and maybe that'll come into play in like a season three or something. Who knows? Yeah, I kind of think that that I have some ideas on where season three could go, and I think that 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 could absolutely be a factor. Yeah, I wouldn't count him out for sure. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to discuss a little bit was about Libby's mo, or more importantly, some of the the charcoal eating that was happening. I think we've touched on this a little bit. But the show, at least from what I remember, and if anybody knows that I'm wrong, please write in. But I don't (laughs) think the show really specifically gives us the answer as to why the nap baby had any charcoal in its mouth. Or why Libby had charcoal in her mouth when when, uh, Bitsy was, was kind of... Bitsy discovered her in in the in the poison room or whatever that room was in the hospital. So I, I don't know if you have any greater knowledge of that from the book or if it was even a detail in the book. I think well, we kind of hypothesized that maybe Gugu was trying to resuscitate the baby, um, the nap baby at least. But uh, yeah, I, I I just kind of want to see what your thoughts were because I feel like that question mark is still unanswered for me leaving the season. Part of the Part of the, I'm trying to think of the right word, I guess part of the MO really in the book and also sort of in the show is like, so Libby's sort of fixation is on her ability or her desire to to raise and nurse a child herself. So she is nursing the baby. And part of the thing in the book is that she, Libby, is ingesting 
the poison herself and passing it through her breast milk to the baby. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the warped, twisted makeup of her brain that she is simultaneously giving life, but also giving death. Because like, kind of like Gugu says in the in the show, he's like, we all know what's going to happen, right? Because Libby is so deranged that she is administering this poison because she wants to kill these children, but she also wants to like provide them life. And she just needs to keep that cycle of like starting over. And so she's actually taking the poison and passing it to the baby that way. It's part of the like the the twisted narrative in her mind of she's kind of the conduit for all of this to get to the child. And it becomes important in the book because Libby is she's poisoning herself. So she's weakened. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it takes less poison to kill a baby than to kill the adult. So there is a period of time after she has nursed the baby that she's that Libby is in like a weakened state and essentially kind of goes dormant <laughs> or holes up and doesn't leave so she can recover and get healthy again. And I think that the charcoal Libby is taking it to make herself better and possibly also taking it to pass its effects along to the baby and essentially like kind of ride this wave of poison and healing mm-hmm. with the baby until ultimately the baby succumbs to it or all, or she's she's administering enough to the baby that she needs the charcoal to like help herself and i forgot exactly how the isaacsons explained the charcoal what exactly chemically it does to uh to act as like a healing agent do you recall I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if they necessarily broke into it too much, but from what I understand, something like an activated charcoal would probably serve as like a um would like neutralize the toxin in neutralize some way. Neutralize or absorb in some way rather than making the body deal with it, the charcoal would take it and then I think your body essentially just passes the charcoal as the idea rather than, you know, actually ingesting and digesting the poison. Yes. Um take my not very thoroughly researched opinion from that. But. I, I think that's that's essentially, yeah, the general idea that they laid out there was that, that that's how it works. So uh, they don't get there. There isn't really, to my knowledge in the book, a sort of cure like that or an antidote that Libby takes. I think it's more just she takes a couple of days to like, she feels weakened and she feels sick and she's probably nauseous and vomiting or whatever, but then she gets better. And I think in the show, it was more like, Partially, it served a visual purpose because she looked horrifying with her teeth all black and like that. <laughs> but also, I think that's the function is that she's trying to make herself stay healthy. She poisons that, the kids and then... That makes sense. Like, I think I think part of the... And I will put this on the show. I feel as though I did not fully get the impression that Libby understood what she was doing with the acetanilide. Because it is, it is, uh, they do mention that it is an actual, it was used as a medicine. It's meant to be somewhat of a painkiller and I think a fever reducer, um, at least in those days. Um, but it can serve as a poison in high enough doses. And so I guess I never really fully understood whether or not Libby knew what she was doing with it and whether Mm. or not her actions were affecting the child. And it sounds like in the book, there's a much more complicated relationship of like 
she is doing this to hurt the baby and also give it life and and that type of that type of thing. I don't feel as though the show necessarily drilled deep enough into that for us to take away the same. I, I would agree. Yeah, it's it definitely feels like a sort of a blink and you miss it sort of detail because it makes sense to use some a a, a, a medicine like that that would be easily attainable for her and that large quantities of it could go in use and people wouldn't necessarily think anything of it. And it also might not take that, you know, a normal adult dose might be enough to harm an infant. Yeah. So, but she may also be taking a larger than normal adult dose and that's why she needs the charcoal to kind of mitigate the, uh, the effects. All right. Well, we should get into listener feedback. Uh, we did have an email from a listener, Mariana. Uh, she, I, I took a lot of her emails. It was quite long and it was very good. And I was glad to, to have somebody so passionate about the show right into to our show as well. But I did want to kind of summarize her thoughts at least and kind of discuss some of that. She had three main complaints about the season. The first of which was the fact that there wasn't any upstate New York, which is something that I think you had, you had touched on a little bit at least. And then also she mentions Clarence Darrow and Rupert Picton. At least Clarence Darrow is is a is an actual person, uh, a, a historical figure. So you, you have a little more context to this, at least. What do you think? Um, do you feel as though, obviously, some of the broader scope of having the the upstate New York stuff is missed in in this season? Like I think we've touched on in the past, but um, some of the mechanics of what goes on in that section of the book. What did, what do you feel? Do you feel like the season kind of missed out on some some other historical figuriness or like other characters to play with what do you think i did i did admit well okay i did miss a lot of that stuff and i think reading reading the email i definitely agreed my my gut agreed with a lot of it because i was i was disappointed that a lot of those things were missing and i this is all initial reaction i was kind of thinking oh they should have kept that they should have kept this they should have traveled here they should have dealt with this character but at the same time i understand why they did everything they did and i think it's part of those one of those things that comes with what kind of starting to accept the nature of adaptations a little more because there was Mm -hmm. a time where i certainly would have been far less forgiving of certain liberties taken and and then basic functions of adaptations happening i would have not been as uh forgiving of it or understanding but i get it a lot more now I also think there's room for a lot of this stuff to come into play in a season three. Mm. So, without I, that's the thing, I can't really get too far into it because I think a lot of this stuff still could come to pass because okay. essentially what's missing from the show that's in book two, there's a lot of kind of the second half of the book turns into a giant legal drama. Okay. And... I still think there's a lot I that's my theory is what season 3 if anything will be a like a long legal drama and I think it'll be Laszlo dealing with institute stuff as well as Libby Hatch stuff and I think it'll be Sarah and John also dealing with Libby Hatch stuff like so I think I think I think Libby could be here for the long haul it's already gone down very differently than it does in the book, but I think there's plenty of room and opportunity for them to swing back around, bring in a lot of the stuff that didn't happen in the show that does happen in the book, and find a way to 
tie that in and really satisfy readers by bringing that stuff to the screen. And this is something I didn't really consider until probably episode five or six. I kind of started thinking it became really apparent that we weren't going to get any of this this season. (laughs) But I was also cool with it. I was like, oh, okay, right on. That's fine. Like this, this is this is good. Like I like where it's going. But then I started to think, you know what? A whole third season could be kind of based around these ideas, which is why I was surprised that the Institute stuff with Polly did come into play so late in the second season. Because I thought if anything, it would happen at the very end of season two as sort, of a, as sort of a cliffhanger, like Laszlo, you're barred from the Institute, get the hell out of here and set us up for a season three. But then they kind of sort of resolve it, but he also goes to Europe. So he might come back and they might be like, hey, we're striking the name Chrysler from it. You're barred from entering and it's becoming like state run or something. And he would be like, no, 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 no. And then it might be a a giant thing. So anyway, I basically I agree with and I recognize and understand all of uh, Mariana's Mariana, right? Yep. Mariana's concerns, but I can crunch my kind of thoughts into one unsatisfying sentence and say, this could be season three. (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting. It it may not, it very well may not be. They it's in fact, it's probably more likely than not that they just say we're good. We did two seasons. They were cool. Everyone's moving on. But if they do a season three, I think it's a no brainer to continue with some of those characters and, uh, there, there are a lot of twists and turns that didn't happen that could. And I think there, there is probably some legal gymnastics that a character could do to get Libby released from jail and thus necessitate a legal battle to prove that she should be there. Interesting. Yeah, one of the other things that Mariana also had as a complaint was Libby's backstory was kind of watered down, which I think... Also fits in with what you've been saying, things that they could bring up later, character type stuff that we didn't get to touch on, and specific details about her life before we we were around her, really. Yes, um, and all that stuff becomes crucial in the legal stuff. And that, so. I, I like, honestly, that sounds extremely intriguing to me, but I also, for that same reason, kind of think, like... If we look at what The Alienist as a TV series is between seasons one and two, taking three and making it less about the the detective work and more about a legal battle feels like something that they wouldn't do. But well, also, because we're in such an uncharted territory with the existence of this program in the first place, I feel like if anybody was going to do it that way, they could absolutely do it. Well, the the thing of it is, is that it's not as simple as we've done the detective work. Now we do the legal stuff. It's we've done the detective work, but Libby is so crafty and her legal team are so crafty that we need to mm. continue doing more detective work to prop up and support our case against her. So the detective work definitely does not end. It doesn't go away. Okay. Yeah. It, right. become, it becomes more important than ever because they realize who they're dealing with and they say, we have to keep this person behind bars. We need to pull out all the stops and and prove once and for all. Very interesting. And admittedly, I haven't gone back and watched the last couple episodes with this train of thought in mind, but I'm not convinced. Basically, what do they what stone cold evidence do they have on her directly being responsible for 
you know, which deaths or kidnappings can they can they without a doubt prove are solely her and not have her or her team bounce it onto Gugu or Dr. Marco or any number of other figures from her past. I'm trying to think of what they have her dead to rights on and what what they as a as a group have and not just Sarah witnessing or just John. What can they prove without somebody saying, well, these guys, these are all a bunch of characters who are in cahoots with each other. Yeah. This is part of where that Hearst Burns spin machine comes into play too because they've already started publishing things about Sarah being like, and an, an, an agitator basically yeah and they've already kind of started to paint john as unreliable and flaky and uh dealing with this wayward woman and this crazy psychologist who exists on the fringe of like his field yeah. i think there's a lot there that's lurking that they've that they've laid down some groundwork to be able to quickly flip the script on these characters and say like because Proving this kind of stuff in a court of law and convincing a jury, especially when the the mother or the the woman who's being charged could be painted as like a a sympathetic daughter and mother, you know, it gets it gets gray real quickly. Yeah. And I think it feels to me a logical thing to do for season three because a third season of like here's another killer we got to track, it would start to feel a little, perhaps it could feel a little redundant. And I think this could be really interesting. Or if there is one going on simultaneously to this legal battle, and basically these guys are burning the candle at both ends trying to make all this work, it could be really good. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, you've sold me on it. I think that that sounds very, very cool. Just kind of like the the idea that they would come back to it and be like, that wasn't just the end. She wasn't yeah. just in prison. You know, there she has other options to try and get out or whatever. And them having to actually reckon with the police work that they did or did not do. Yes, I and any corners sounds... that they cut. And, uh, you know, having to exist and function within the system, the legal system, and not just the policing system, which has mm -hmm. been proven to be rife with corruption. But what is the actual law, you know, law body going to bring to the table could be really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. No, that sound that all sounds quite So good. I I promise to those who haven't read the books but are planning on it, I really didn't spoil anything. It may sound like I just blew the whole second half of the book for you. I promise I didn't. It gets wild. So you just you'll have to read it. You're making me want to read it. So <laughs> <laughs> you're doing your job. Um Mariana's third point that she was unhappy with, of course, was Marcus's death, which I think we 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 spoke to quite Yes, quite uh, well in our and in our I agree episode. with one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's very disappointing. Um, she had two questions for us. She says, "Who do you think? Who's the superior brother in your guys's opinion?" And she said, "This will yield interesting answers since we have a reader slash watcher and just a watcher." Um, you know, I don't. It's I don't necessarily want to pit Marcus and Lucius against each other, but I think it's an interesting thought exercise. You know, I think they both have their their pros and their cons, maybe. And, uh, you know, they're both obviously quite intelligent people, and Marcus seems like the much more personable one, where Lucius feels like the much more logical one, that type of thing. Um, so I don't really know that I have any, like, hard evidence to come to the table and say I think this one's better than the other. But at least 
you know, in terms of like Lucius kind of bending to Burns's will in the beginning of the season and sharing that information about the investigation to save Marcus, I feel like Marcus's Marcus's moral compass may have been more centered in that point, but we didn't really see that tested at all, so it's kind of hard to know that for sure. Um, you know, and and I think uh as we've spoken, Marcus is the more traditionally handsome of the two, and so, you know, if I were going to pick who I was going to be, would I want to be Marcus or Lucius? I'd probably want to be Marcus, you know? <laughs> I, uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't pick one, yeah. honestly. Like, they're, they, and, and it's part of the reason why Marcus's death sucks, because they, they're a unit. Like, they're, they're mm-hmm. a team. And one without the other doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I just can't, it's like a, I, I know I mentioned this last time and I still don't remember if they're supposed to be twins or not. Uh, but it really would be like having just one twin. It's, it was like at the end of the, and I am not a Harry Potter fan, but it was like at the end of Harry Potter mm-hmm. seven or whatever, when one of the twins dies, one of the Weasley twins dies. I was like, that's stupid. Like I remember reading, reading the book or no, I didn't read the I didn't read those books. I stopped it for, but I, when I saw the movie, I was like, what? They kill one, and I like ask the people. I'm like, "Did they? Does that happen in the book?" And they're like, "Yeah." And I was like, "That's so dumb." <laughs> kill him. and I get it. Like, it could happen. It has happened in real life. One twin has died tragically, and it, shit, it happened to Nick Nick Cave. One of Nick Caves, yeah. he had twin boys, and one of them died. Uh, horrifying, obviously, for anybody to lose a sibling or a child. Uh, but for it to be a twin, it seems extra devastating because you, the the relationship of twins. But in, just for a story function, I mean, like, if you're going to make your story about studying a twin whose twin has died, like if season three, we get a lot of like Lucius reckoning without his brother. Um, and again, they might not be twins. I genuinely don't remember. But they're so close. And they're According so, to Wikipedia, they are twins in the book. I okay. don't know if they are in the show or not. Yeah, I thought, I thought they were referred to as the Isaacson twins uh, from time to time. So anyway, perfect. Uh, then maybe something interesting could come of it for sure. But in general, I'm just kind of like, ugh, like, give me both of them or neither of them. It's, it's also just a according bummer. to Wikipedia and the show, they are twins too. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, and- they're wonderful together. And I, I love them both in the book. I mean, your, your Marcus takes a little bit more of like the forefront in the books only because he's kind of the, he's kind of the mouthpiece for both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Lucius will have idea, like they work together. It's kind of the thing where like they'll have an aside and they kind of talk amongst each other and then Marcus will be like, okay, here's what we think. He's kind of the one to kind of put forth that, that energy and that momentum. But Lucius definitely takes a lot of initiative in the, in the books and he definitely, uh, yeah, I can't pick one. They're both so good. Like they're, I think, I think that's the saddest thing about this is that I don't necessarily feel like the show had enough time for them to really grow into their own individuals they they kind of just yes. existed as that unit for the purpose of yep. the story but not really as fleshed out as john and, and laszlo and and sarah are which makes sense you can't i mean an ensemble cast is a thing but i feel like this story made a lot of sense focusing on those main three um but it just kind of sucks because that because i like the isaacson's quite a bit yeah so. you could have there there was a lot more to go and like i'm not and this is where maybe Mariana and I will differ- disagree, but I'm not fundamentally opposed to the idea, I suppose, of one of them dying. Now that you've made that point, I think it's more that they didn't have time to be as fully realized as individuals and as a team in the show as they do in the books. And I kind of mentioned this before, too. There's a, there's a lot you can do with them 
with very little effort just in how you include them in the scenes. And like, this is a weird example, but remember um, uh, Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn in like the Oceans movies, like Oceans 11? They, Barely. They but... play, they play, I think they're twins. They're definitely brothers, okay. but I think they're supposed to be twins. The, Oceans 11 alone, if that's the only one you've seen of the series, it does so much to easily showcase the dynamic between them by putting them in the background of scenes and showing them doing things together, usually bickering about something. Blow up or, arguments or like yes. things that don't and, need center focus to be. Yep. And it's off and off to the side. Sometimes it's purely visual or like even in the gag in, in the movie where they both have to play characters who have a confrontation in the hotel lobby to draw attention. They're like, well, let the two brothers do it because they're so natural and good at it. Yeah. And it's funny. It's like stunt casting <laughs> almost. Instead of like making Brad Pitt be one of them and Casey Affleck be the other, like, no, just let the two brothers be strangers who are fighting with each other because yeah. naturally they will escalate it. And it's those kind of little things that that really you walk away from that movie being like, I get those twins 100% and I get the jokes that they could set up without needing the setup. And I just wanted a little bit more out of that with uh, regard to the Isaacsons because the books do it pretty well by by describing their body language and the way that they interact with each other and a lot of the the it often describes a lot of the glances they give each other or well one of them will get annoyed with the other where like uh one of them says like well mom i forget which one it is that i think lucius is the one who talks about their mom and marcus is like give it a rest like mom's not right about everything and then like they there's these little aside (laughs) arguments that are very funny and endearing and uh yeah i just am gonna miss that stuff It, it sucks to think that we won't get it uh, going Absolutely. forward. Completely agreed. Um, and then Mariana's other question, she said, uh, do you support the TNT writers room in their decision to kill off such an important character? We kind of touched on that. And she says, if you're like me and you don't, who do you think should have gotten the ax or was captain Doyle enough? Mariana made this point of, uh, married of, of Caleb Carr feeling like he needed to have a, a character, like a sacrificial lamb to kill in each book. Yes, I don't think that, I think the first one benefits from it because it tells you a lot more about Laszlo. I don't really think any of the main characters needed to die in this book uh, or in this, in this season of the show um, because there's already enough dark shit going down. Like you just don't, you don't need it to really be that last, like drive home. The idea, like we get it. This lady leaves a wake of just destruction and death and pain and yeah, it do, it doesn't. I don't think it needs it. I don't think you, and especially not to kill one of the main characters. I I know it's like it's one of those things where they say like, oh, you know, screw it, kill him, like kill your characters, like Harrison Ford, hell yeah, kill Han Solo, let's do it. Like, uh, uh what's another thing? Like Joss Whedon likes to like kill people, like kill main characters. Yep. Uh, and I get it. Like you can get a lot of good drama out of that. I just think there was enough going on already, and I think it doesn't help at least as of now it doesn't help the story it doesn't help the characters in fact it was it like befuddled you and i because we're like what are these guys doing like i get it like yes marcus is dead and you want to go pay your respects but it was that scene where they're like hanging out at the house and like man yeah sucks huh (laughs) yeah totally What's still the, out there though. What, what, do you, what do you got going on this weekend though? Like it, 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 it made me like cock my head. Like what the fuck? What is this? Easily the least natural part of the the last two episodes, I think. Yeah, it was just yeah because it 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 did weird things to the timetable of the show, and it 
I just don't think it worked and it wasn't necessary. And we didn't even have time for Lucius's revenge on Gugu to feel earned. Like it just, yeah. it just happened. And like, like, Oh, this is a funny compare. I keep talking about SVU because that's what we're watching when we <laughs> pass out on the couch. But this episode, probably like in the end of the first act or so of one episode, uh, uh, Christopher Maloney gets like put a, he gets like suspended and like his badge and gun are taken and all the characters in the show are like, oh, no. what? And, and then, like, the third act, he's back. And it's fine. <laughs> and <laughs> I was cracking up because it happens again in the next season with the chief. The, en- the end of one season, like, all this shit goes down. And, like, the world of SVU is shaken to the core. And at the <laughs> beginning of the next season, you know, it's left uncertain what's going to happen. The beginning of the next season, the chief is, like, packing up his desk. And he's like... Uh, see and, and they're like what are you doing he's like someone's got to take the fall for all of it and he's like he's like i'll be i'll be back don't worry but they have like a new primary cast member and then munch is put in charge mm. and they all like look at him like the f-. and at the end of that episode the chief is back and he's like <laughs> it's so funny like i was yeah. i was laughing my ass off because i know that at the time this is how much things have changed this was like 2006 ish maybe that was probably hard hitting shit. And that was mm-hmm. probably like peak TV. But now it's 2020. TV has changed so much. Like the standard yeah. for writing is so much higher now. For the better, obviously. But yeah. I remember thinking, I was like, this would never fly now. I mean, that's not true because like NCIS and CSI are still going strong. The same, and, yeah, the same yeah, crap is out And there, they're yeah. still terrible. But I feel like in terms of... That was water cooler TV back then. Like people probably yep. showed up to work and were like, did you see... Holy shit, did you see SVU? And now it's the the type of shows people are talking about. the 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 quality of writing is so much higher. So, yeah. Uh, in re, in regard to this show, I I think that there that moment of Lucius getting his revenge just didn't feel earned at all because it basically happened in the same episode essentially because yep. it was the same week. Like I said, if he, if season three had started and Marcus had died in like episode two or end of episode one, I'd be like, whoa, there's way more potential for this to get interesting. And then at the end of the season, have that payoff and, and make me think, okay, maybe that was worth it. But right now, I'm like, the show in no way benefited. It's only a detriment. Yeah, there's no, there's not even any, like, we can't even say that we're going to have some sort of, like, worthwhile journey afterwards as of yet, right? So, who knows? Yes. But, yep. Yeah, I, I think I largely agree. I think, um, I think the horrors of the babies that are being killed and, you know, harmed in this season... Are I felt as though the character's personal investment was great enough that it didn't really need that level of somebody important to them dying because they knew it was kids that were on the line. They yeah. knew it was babies that were on the line. And well, and so I don't necessarily know that like Well in in the book there's a way stronger connection they have to the Signora and to Baby mm-hmm. Anna. Like that is incredibly personal to all of them. And in the show, it it kind of is, but then it also resolves a lot earlier than it does in the book. And and then then it becomes about the Vanderbilt baby, who is strictly a dollar sign, essentially. (laughs) That's that's a blank check in a baby carriage. And while that's awesome for the mechanics of the show to be like, okay, now they have this guy in their back pocket, that's cool. But the, the drama of it all suffers for it because in the book it's like a race against the clock to find this baby because 
of who that baby is and the backdrop of teetering on a war with Spain, which is something they don't really explore in the show that much at all. Like the, the retrieval of this baby will essentially impact on whether or not these two countries go to war. So not only are they trying to rescue a child and save the sanity of the mother of this child, which is an extremely compelling personal story. You've also got a war. Global <laughs> politics. Global, yeah, <laughs> annihilation in <laughs> looming in the backdrop. Big deal. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, you don't need to kill one of the core guys to, to accelerate. Like, you've got it. You've got the makings of all that drama there. So, yeah. I think it was a mistake. <laughs> TLDR. <laughs> There's plenty of opportunity that they chose not to uh, to implement, which is strange. But hey, whatever. We're not running it. Yeah. I guess. Yep. <laughs> if you, if and when you do read it or listen to it on on tape or, or however you choose to to engage with the story, I think you'll you'll come away from it seeing that there was a lot of opportunity for them to to mine the book a little bit more. Oh, also. The big brouhaha at the police station in the sh- in the show, which was really cool, it's bigger in the book, and mm. it's it, it basically they took that conflict and they they still put it in sort of the same place of the story, kind of, but no, not also not. <laughs> I don't know. Basically, like in the book, just when you think things can't come to more of a head, they do. And there's essentially that scene, but it's it's bigger in scope, if you can believe it. And it's okay. so sweet. It's so cool. And uh, I would I get why they didn't do it in the show. But if they could have, it would have been so gnarly. Um, yeah. But that also is like another reason the stakes get so high. You've got like just this all out like turf war going on. And uh, I can't really talk anymore without ruining like the all time the just the best reveal in the in the whole book series but uh yeah marcus shouldn't have died <laughs> yeah mariana did write in after the fact she said uh, and uh, a second time she said i have to say after starting to rewatch it i'm not too mad at the season as a whole anymore just bummed that they killed off one of my favorite characters and yeah and i, I get think, that i think I, we can agree totally like yeah. i i love the isaacsons i i recall when we were watching season one of this show telling you like you're gonna love these characters because they're yeah. they're you. So there's two of them. <laughs> Alex yeah. would be the third Isaacson brother if uh, <laughs> if we were transported into this era. Yes, the one that is just smart enough and not as handsome as I'm in the middle. I think <laughs> you're the between. you're the Venn diagram of the, yes, of the Isaacsons. Yes, yeah, <laughs> just like I am with my actual brothers. And uh, yeah, but oh my god, um, I didn't even think about that. The three of you guys. Oh, <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Thank you, Mariana, for writing in with your email. It was it was quite good. Yeah, I uh, loved reading it. I loved uh, reading something from somebody who was so passionate and and cared so much about the books and the characters. It was uh, it was wonderful. So thank absolutely. you, thank you for being involved and for listening to our show and enjoying it so much. Yes. Keep your fingers crossed uh, for a season three for sure because yeah. I, I think this could be a really cool journey for all of us to go on if it does happen, because we'll kind of be striking out into the unknown for us book readers. Yeah. As, as such a big fan, Mariana, we won't necessarily have an opportunity to talk about it. Um, but if you want to write in and let us know how you would feel about a season three, I'd really like to know how you as, as a, 
big fan of the books uh, w- would feel about seeing a third season and whether or not it would, uh, you know, deal with things from the actual text or not, wh- how you would feel about those different possibilities. So, uh, but yeah, uh, we have another email from Jacqueline C. She wrote in to say, I've quite enjoyed your analysis and thoughts on the alienist angel of darkness. I must agree as a book reader, I was disappointed that the series veered so far from the case in the book. Uh, I found Libby to be an equal adversary in the books. In the show, she seemed like nothing more than a mentally ill person. Also, the girl power vibe was thinly veiled. The book does a better job of representing them as a team. Um, Changes I found appropriate. Number one, John Moore's character, not uh, the unnecessary romance, but the moral fiber and usefulness. And then two, the focus on the three main characters rather than Stevie. Um, and then she said, one suggestion, it would be cool to do one podcast of the series, assuming the listener has either read the book or doesn't mind it being spoiled. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, thank you, Jacqueline, for writing in. Interesting. Um, but yeah, so it sounds like she, she agrees on some of the some of the things that we don't necessarily love about the season, that the book maybe sounds like it did a little bit better in terms of, of Libby. Um, but the idea of... Uh, John having more moral fiber and being a little more useful in the show, uh, I think is, <laughs> <laughs> I think is good. <laughs> uh, sorry, although that was I a do really, really, weird... really miss chain smoking, John. Yeah, I, can't. I know. I have I have a soft spot in my heart for like dumb along for the ride, last kid on the bus, John. <laughs> like he just yeah, and Luke, you know, testament to Luke Evans, he plays both sides of the coin very well. He can yes. play a lovable dunce as well as uh-huh. uh, the the growing and maturing John. Uh, yeah, I I agree. Yeah, he's he grows a lot, not just. I, and again, I I'm starting to think that the romance was not necessarily unnecessary, but sort of necessary. I maybe necessary is not the right word. I like it though. I like it more than I thought I had any reason to. Especially now that it seems like he's just gonna like realize he's gonna do what is the right thing and probably right for him and just to marry Violet and raise their child and like live that life. But hey, that's more, more ground for season three to cover. Yeah. I, and that's the thing. I, I think it was still a very fruitful path for them to go down, even if it wasn't necessarily like on the face of needing to have a romance between the fe- one of the female leads and one of the male leads. Yeah. I think that trope, is tired um yeah and the will they won't they extremely tired but i still feel as though where it took both of them as characters it's especially john yeah but where it took both of them as characters i thought was was very good and having sarah be the one that was very like measured and careful about it and and you know the the gender reversals in so many different instances that we remarked <laughs> so many about. <laughs> It's fan fantastic, you know, and of course the very tasteful side ass that we got to see from Luke Evans. Yeah, that's my big takeaway. You can't just put a butt in front of the camera and just <laughs> expect us to buy in. You mm-hmm. gotta, it's gotta be motivated. Mm-hmm. So if this romance served nothing other than just to insert Luke Evans' butt uh, in a way that makes sense with the story. <laughs> <laughs> then it, it was, was worth it, it was worth it yeah Absolutely. uh yeah what's god this is so funny my my wife loves christopher maloney and it's part of the reason we've been watching law and order svu and i get it 100 percent. like he's he's amazing yeah. but i passed out on the couch the other day 
uh, or the other night, because we're both just exhausted right now. And one night, it's all we're always trading off who stays awake longer. And the one who stays awake probably watches like an extra 30 minutes of an SVU episode. And the next morning, <laughs> one will have to update the Recap. other on what happened. Yeah. yeah. And this one night, she woke me up on the couch and I did the total John Carter, like, <gasps> like wake up. Like I had been defibbed dust out of your mouth. Yeah. I was so yeah. asleep and she was like, wake up. And I was like, okay. She's like, let's go to bed. And I'm like, okay. And she's like, you missed Christopher Maloney's butt. It was on the screen. <laughs> and I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, yeah. He got back together with his wife and they, they had him standing there in his, like his bare butt. And I was like, oh man, I missed that. And she's like, yeah, it was so good. So, Got, had to go back for that one. You know? <laughs> I haven't done it yet. No, I just I, I just took her word for it. I mean, I don't need to see it to believe it. It was probably glorious. For sure. I was asking her, though, sure. like, jokingly, I was like, how did they light it? And she, she talked about, like, the lighting in the scene. And I was like, oh, that sounds so good. <laughs> it was hilarious. They, and there's so Beautiful. much attention called to him and his physicality in the show, though. There's always, like, a woman character who's like, you can't put the weight of the world on those broad shoulders of yours forever. <laughs> and, like, stuff like that. It's so funny. He's so objectified in the show. It's amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah, as someone who mostly loves Christopher Maloney from um, uh, the films of the state, you know, of Wet Hot yep. American Summer, and they came together and things like that, it just feels like a completely different life that he lives that I oh, have no concept. Absolutely, of yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But um, briefly back to Jacqueline's email, she mentioned something about doing like kind of a spoiler, spoiler, an open spoiler book discussion. Um, I think that would be good. I would like that to be something that I would partake in, and uh, I would have to read a book to do that. So I, I, I'm not going to make any promises. It probably wouldn't be anytime soon, but um, you know, I, I have a feeling that if I ever did complete the book, then Nick and I could probably sit down in front of some microphones real quick and just talk about it. And uh He'll be like, hey, how did you think of this one part? And I'll be like, I don't remember that because my reading comprehension is really bad. And then that'd be the end of the podcast. But no, I, I do think there would be worth in a discussion like that. And and hopefully, um, you know, we can we can get something together in the future. Yeah, that's definitely the biggest thing is I I think both Alex and I have a tremendous amount of respect for people being able to experience things for themselves. And I know that we both love being we both love riding shotgun with somebody when they're experiencing like a movie or something that we love firsthand. We're definitely both that guy who like if we're watching a movie that we love with you and it's your first time, we're going to be like, like we're mostly watching looking, yeah. looking down the couch at you to see how you react to certain things, which I know is is can be weird. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's kind of been my greatest uh, pleasure in doing this podcast is and same with Preacher really was watching uh, Alex's reaction to a lot of this stuff and also listener feedback from people who haven't read the books. And I mean, from our Preacher show, I mean, Alex read all of Preacher after the fact. Uh, we we have a few friends and listeners who, uh, people that we know personally and people that we don't that were writing in that after Preacher was over or during it, they said, I'm going to read the books. And mm -hmm. uh, people that started buying them after and because they said, wow, this is such a great series. Like I'm, they started buying the comics and uh, – and bringing it into their into their fold of uh, of of stuff that they own, which is awesome. That that is the best part, for sure. And it's not even just doing this just to like talk about it for an hour or two every week, which is a lot of fun. 
But getting to experience that stuff with people and getting to go on these journeys both together and, uh, you know, along with listeners who have read and haven't read is is the reason that it's so fun. And uh, so that's why I had to often suppress my instinct to explore some of that stuff a little more because I don't want to ruin certain things for Alex because when he does get around to reading it or listening to it, I want those reveals to hit as hard as they possibly can given, uh, you know, it's the, uh, the space seed story basically. (laughs) Yes. If Alex is willing to tell it, it's a good one. (laughs) I I don't know that we need to go too far back, but there, (laughs) I mean, there is a Midwest film nerds podcast episode about Star Trek into darkness that will give you more context on this. Basically there's an episode of the original Star Trek called Space Seed, which feeds into The Wrath of Khan, which is the second Star Trek movie. And they were made many years apart. And uh, obviously, Star Trek Into Darkness is somewhat of a retelling of the character Khan's story. And uh, as we were reviewing the movie, Nick was like, I don't know why they did this. They should have done it this way. It would have been way cooler if we did this. And it basically made me start crying as we were recording. <laughs> Because everything he was bringing up, I feel like, were things that they did in the originals, and he hasn't seen them. Um, so it's the idea of depriving anybody of the 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 better version of the story, or of um, you know, like the, just like the experience of of yeah, uh, watching something. As I sit here and tear up a little bit, my apologies. Yeah, like the if you can experience something in the in the purest way that like the author intended, it's always the best way in general. Yep. I shouldn't say always, but in general. And so, yeah, by me not having experienced that amount of backstory and being able to feed into the story properly, I was left extremely dissatisfied and annoyed with the story that I saw because I was like, "This is bullshit," basically. But also because the movie's not that good. In my, uh, <laughs> I was gonna say it's still bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I would I would hate to just throw all the book stuff out there and not have Alex be able to experience any of it for himself. Because there, although you're kind of going, you will be going into the books sort of informed. You know who a lot of the characters are. You know, you won't read that prologue to the Angel of Darkness and see the name Libby Hatch and see these characters react with such a revulsion and be like, "Wow, what does this chick do? What's her deal?" You already kind of know some of it, but there's also so much more for you to learn and so much more for yeah. experience. So it's the it's the whole adaptation thing once again. Like there are things that are going to be in the book that are going to be specific to the book until another adaptation yeah. comes out. And like being able to appreciate the book for what it is over what the TV show is, I think it's we've always tried to. And there's been times where maybe Nick will reveal something that like if i'm being smart enough about it i might realize like oh we might go there still or like oh um maybe we reveal a little too much and sometimes maybe it would have been fine and other times maybe it wasn't and and i think um i've always tried to craft these shows in in the amount of crafting that i even do for it in a way that would allow people to still enjoy both the book and the show even if they did them at kind of different times. Yeah. So there are definitely, that's kind of our purpose for doing it this way. And, but I do, as, as Jacqueline brings up, I think it would be good to have a discussion about the book that people who have read the book would be able to come to. Um, um, but you know, I think we still get to have these very interesting and fruitful discussions without giving that stuff away. And that's very much what this wrap up episode is kind of meant to be too. Yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, we got, uh, two more emails here. One is from Ellen B. 
Uh, she subject line podcast habits. So this is more specifically about a question we had, not to the show, but just for our interest. Uh, she says, if more than one are released, I usually listen to the podcast of the most recent episode that I've seen first. And then if I have time or I'm really interested in something that happened, I listen to the others in backwards order. I sometimes wait the year until a show is free on Netflix to watch it and listen to one or more podcasts as I watch the episodes. I also got really lucky and started watching the enormous back catalog of Stargate, and it started to coincide with a podcast that was doing a rewatch of it at, at the same time. It's fun and weird to be watching it as many years later as uh, with a contemporary podcast. That is so awesome. It is very cool. I love uh, that. Yeah. And then she said, finally, I ended up subscribing to HBO in order to watch Westworld in real time and get that water cooler effect of being up to speed with other viewers. It really works for puzzle-type shows. I was glad that uh, I had it when Watchmen came along. Hmm. So I guess there's no rhyme or reason to my listener style. I just get so much more out of shows by listening to other viewers. Thanks for all you do. You are quite well welcome, Ellen. We do it Aww. for you. We are glad to have you. Thank you, Ellen. Ride. Ellen B. And that's... If you're, it's very interesting. It sounds like kind of depending on the way she's watching a show or the reason she's watching a show, she might come at it from different perspectives or listen to other people's opinions on things for different reasons. So, so there might be somebody out there that would listen to our Rubicon podcast if we did actually make it. There you go. That'd be great if it was like literally the most popular thing we ever did. <laughs> it would <laughs> it be awesome. About the one season of Rubicon. <laughs> we, you know, we might... We might just have to do it, and hopefully, listeners from this show and from Watchmen or Preacher or Film Nerds or whatever would see it in their feed and say, "Like, oh man, I'll give it a shot," because that's a show that everyone should watch, and hardly anyone has. Absolutely, and certainly could, no one is talking about. We could revitalize the uh, Rubicon subreddit that I'm a moderator on, probably with just a post <laughs> to the first episode. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I don't know if I'm joining. If I've subscribed to that subreddit, I'm gonna have to check it out. Well, it's great because it's mostly like I think the most recent post is somebody talking about potentially buying a Jeep Rubicon, and somebody yeah. commenting and being like, "This is about the TV show, man. You want to go over there?" Yeah. But I, as a moderator, I left it there because I found it so funny. It was funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's just you should just keep it like pin it to the top. Yeah, the sticky thread, basically. Um, but yes, thank you, Ellen, for writing in. And then Ellen, uh, I friend. I just want to say I think that Ellen's Stargate thing is awesome, and I absolutely love doing that with find finding a show that's a little bit older, like a decade or or more removed, and listening to a contemporary show. I think is mm -hmm. just one of my favorite things to do, and to one of my favorite ways to examine a show and have discussion with peers like this. Yeah, a lot of my favorite shows are are things that now seem old because uh, I am getting old. And I think doing a contemporary show that uh, is able to look back with uh, with a different lens on on all this stuff can be a lot of fun. And a show like Stargate, that which there's been like so many spinoffs of, and and has like cult following, and that could could be a lot of fun. So I'm I'm a little envious of that. That sounds really cool. Yeah, I mean, there's several shows that I've really thought about doing that with. Uh, at least in terms of like watching them and then listening to other people talk about them. Um, I know Joanna Robinson's been doing one about Lost, and I really love her and, and the group of people that she's doing that show with. And I've never really experienced Lost on much of a firsthand uh, perspective. I mostly got some of it through osmosis when my mom was watching the show. Um, 
So I would love to do that. And I've also wanted to watch the West Wing for the longest time mm. and things only get more insane politically anyway. So having that like warm blanket of like ideal political Aaron Sorkin bullshit sounds pretty great most of the time. Um, and then also Battlestar Galactica is a big blind yep. spot for me as a That's science a big fiction one. fan. Definitely. Yeah, so I, I feel like that would be a lot of fun to go back and, and watch and ha- have a podcast to listen to. So what's a show that you enjoy or I guess you just named a few, but what's a show that if, if you were going to do a podcast about like an older show and a, a contemporary rewatch, possibly with somebody who's never seen it before, what would what would be one that you would enjoy to do? We did speak about um, uh, our podcast that we didn't get to do, uh, The Binford Files, which I think would have been oh, very yeah. good. Looking back at home improvements from the lens of being a Metro Detroiter um, and with the added bonus of, uh, you know, knowing who Tim Allen is now and politics and all that type of shit. Sure. Um, I think that would have been fun. There is another podcast that is doing that called The Home and Podcast, I think it's called. Um, so you could go listen to that. I think that would have been pretty interesting. Um, that is a good one. I forgot all about that. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if I have anything that isn't too like on the nose. There's already a very good podcast called, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of it. I don't actively listen to it. I've been thinking about going back and doing it, but there's podcasts about like Buffy the Vampire Slayer that I think would be. Uh, interesting to do that with and um you know there's only one season of firefly so i don't really know how like insane that would be but i think it would be interesting to kind of re-examine it now even um and so but like other shows that i really really love like i i guess one of the ones that would be really weird and interesting for me and it would be interesting to try and see if it would be that worthwhile would be something like how i met your mother Mm-hmm. where I really enjoyed the first three seasons. Didn't necessarily love a ton of it after that, but it's not quite old enough where I think it makes sense to do that as of yet. And I think giving it that lens of time to kind of wait and see, like it was kind of the, it's kind of like our generation's version of Friends, even though Friends was kind of ours too, but then Friends was kind of the previous or the 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 previous generation's version of Seinfeld, even though Seinfeld was kind of theirs too. So to like see how that's changed through time, you know, I think I think it would be interesting. But do you have any like that that you think you would you would want to you know dissect a little more or make a podcast about or whatever you would want to? I'm trying to remember when we, uh, in our Discord at some point, uh, probably like a year ago or something, somebody said, what are like your top five favorite seasons of TV ever? Yeah. And uh, I I think the only one I can think of immediately that makes sense on a personal level as well as like an airwaves level would be something for Dead Like Me, which Mm -hmm. is a show that I hold incredibly close and uh, was only on for two seasons. (laughs) had a direct-to-video sequel that I've never seen because uh, fans of the show say don't watch the movie. Uh, It's not going to add anything. But in the interest of a podcast, I would actually watch the movie. Uh, But that's a show that I think has a tremendous amount of worth. And at this point, Mm -hmm. I think the first season was from like 2001, maybe? 2002? Like it's old. It's almost 20 years old at this point. And it's got some names in it. And uh, it's an awesome idea. And I think it's on the writing is really, really good. And it deals with the 
topic of grief in a very interesting way. And uh, I think that's one that I personally would get a lot out of. And I think if there was somebody who hadn't seen it, they would really enjoy watching and listening as well. Because I think it's a it's a wonderful show. And that's one that I, I try to rewatch every like couple of years. And I it's been a while now since I've watched it. So I might have to give that a whirl again. I will say Nicole and I did recently rewatch Friday Night Lights, mm. which I feel like is a show. There's a there's a pretty there's a pretty rabid fan base of Friday Night Lights. I guess rabid's maybe the wrong word, but a very like loyal fan base for Friday Night Lights. Yeah. But I often think that show gets kind of discounted for what it is, despite the fact that it has really great writing and really great characters and performances. So I think that would be an interesting one to look back on. Yeah, because there's um, there's a generational with somebody who hasn't seen it. Yeah, there's but. a generational thing that's impossible to ignore. Like if you were to do the idea of you and I, like people that are in their early 30s, doing a show about Seinfeld, uh, for example, or like Friends, could be interesting because although we've watched it, there this is operating under the presumption that anybody younger than us is actually listening to any of our shows. But <laughs> there, there's like a whole generation of people that are. Uh, two generations of people practically at this point that know probably that Seinfeld exists, but really know nothing about it. And yeah, what would, what would you as like a 18 year old think of Seinfeld if you watched it or friends even because they have landlines and shit and they don't use the yeah. internet and they smartphones yeah. didn't exist and everything was different. And yet, Everything Kramer was being the movie phone guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, and everything was the same. It's it culturally so much has changed since then that it's uh it's fascinating to watch TV like that when a writer can simply say they pick up their cell phone and they call somebody because it also introduces that issue especially with like horror movies and you're like call the police. Done. Like what's yeah. the issue here? And yeah. in a way it creates crutches for writers but it also creates a lot of innovation. Like Oh my God, I listened to, uh, I think I may have talked about this. There's a funny podcast called How Did This Get Made, hosted by yep. Paul Shear and Jason Manzukis. And uh, they have tons of great guests on their show. Uh, and they did an episode on cellular. And mm. it was incredible. I was, I was driving <laughs> up to Traverse City while I was listening to it. And I was belly laughing in the car by myself uh, a few months ago listening to this because it was so good. But one of the things they constantly keep talking about is the fact that this movie was made, I think, in like 04, maybe, maybe 05, right when like everybody was starting to get cell phones. And so there were still a lot of the movie going public that didn't have one. And to them, the like the magic of a cell phone could still be just like explained away as like, you know, cutting edge technology, basically, and (laughs) didn't need to follow any any rules and there are so many times on the show where they're just pointing out crazy lines of dialogue where they're just like throwing out just general misconceptions about how (laughs) that technology works and it was really hysterical to listen to but it made me want to go back and watch the movie because i was like i want to see this for myself how a writer at the time used or exploited people's lack of uh, awareness of cell phones for to make this movie happen but anyway super off off track but that's a funny that's a funny show too yeah, no, I, I, you know, I, I think that's a, I think that's a great idea in terms of like, you know, making the, the other thing that I was going to say just on the topic of what you're saying about Seinfeld and like the generational divide, 
I feel like making a Seinfeld show would be something that we would have to make with like younger cousins or mm. offspring, essentially, to just kind of be like, because we are just on that like teetering threshold of like understanding that old world of floppy disks and yeah. landlines and all nineties essentially. So, yeah. Yes, you you would need somebody who's far enough removed from that that can be like what the hell was that that's like that's what? very true yeah you used to do that that kind of thing and i and i think that that is what you would need in order to make that kind of look back because uh, i personally don't know that i would have the awareness to just kind of be like you know hey landlines were crazy dude right <laughs> so it's yeah I, I think the the more natural exploratory version of it is from that kind of younger generation so that's true yeah, like that video of those two boys listening to uh, in Bill the Collins. in the air tonight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's uh, I don't necessarily believe that it's genuine, but I think it's a funny notion to think that 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 kind of thing does happen. People discover. I mean, I still remember vividly when I discovered David Bowie when I was a kid. I remember that yeah. CD and I remember putting it on and just sitting on the living room floor and listening. And I like and then my parents were just like, oh, this like. You think yeah. this is cool? Like, you think this is special because they're so used to it? And uh, you think this is interesting? Like, what? This... <laughs> not that many people have ever th- claimed David Bowie was not interesting, but you know what I'm driving at. No, but the idea when you, like, it, when it's when you start to make those connections pass, like, it's when you're able to give up the fact that, like, something that your parents liked is cool. Yeah. Like, you, you would generally <laughs> discount it because it's just kind of like, oh, that's something my dad likes, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. But but when you naturally find your own way to it, yeah, absolutely. Like Home Improvement. Yes, <laughs> for sure. The Binford Files, check it out. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe someday, um, maybe someday. Yes. Uh, one more email from Sue. Sue writes in and says, thanks for a great podcast, guys. I'm looking forward to a third season with John bringing his little daughter along for the next aven- adventure. <laughs> Laszlo finding love with Karen and Sarah getting everyone involved in another caper. I certainly will miss Marcus, though. Still can't get over that he's dead. Uh, Sue says, I stopped watching Westworld, but will try to continue knowing that you have a podcast for it. I think we make a great companion piece. Please go check it out if uh, if you would like the, the help in dissecting that show. And then she finally said, don't forget to enjoy an egg cream together. Till next time, Sue from Chicago. Uh, yes, we still need to have the ha- the egg cream. It may or may not happen uh, very soon. Yes, uh, I. It's gonna happen. We yes. we we intended fully to record this episode, our final episode, in person, and mm-hmm. uh, it just didn't happen because of scheduling issues. But there will be a face to face in person hangout very soon, and egg creams will be involved. I have Fox's you bet uh, chocolate syrup. And, um, some, I think I went with, I don't think I went with half and half. I think I went with the whole milk Okay, from the Ina Garten, uh, uh, yes, uh, her recipe, recipe that we, we, re- we read after the episode. <laughs> we did. Time. Yeah. We both Googled recipes and started talking about it. Yes. We both and then, um, Googled recipes. Uh, um, club it? soda. It's not tonic. Yes. Club soda. So, so those, we, we will make it happen. It will happen for sure. That's gonna be the that's gonna be the difficult part for me. Like soda water, club soda, carbonated. I I don't like. Like I I choked down like half of a Lacroix the other day, and I was just like, this shit sucks. Why do people like this? I just (laughs) I it's just not for me. I don't really I don't really like. I have a hard time with caffeinated or uh, carbonated stuff in general. I don't like 
the LaCroix, I drink it because I miss pop. Yeah, That's sure. what I do. Yeah. Yeah, but, I had a... Uh, that's, what did I have the other day? I had an orange, uh, orange vanilla Coke, a can mm-hmm. of it, ice cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the first pop I've, I've had to drink in... I cannot recall the last time I had a, the last time I cracked open a can of pop and I took like one big sip and I just sat there and I was like, like (laughs) hit me like a ton of bricks and I felt like shit after I drank it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm most curious about just the idea of the chocolate carbonated beverage. Oh yeah. Me too. It's it's just, I feel like it's going to be kind of akin to Yoohoo because Yoohoo's not really, it's like chocolate water essentially. And I, yeah, I like Yoohoo, but it's not carbonated. But even so, like, yeah, the carbonation just is mind-boggling yeah. to me. So I think the milk's going to even it out a bit. I, I'm really excited. I think it's going to be delicious. Yeah, yeah. We're doing we'll, it. We're doing we'll it for you, Sue. Back, but, uh, and you are yes, so you are right. You, John better have a daughter. I I think it's going to. I don't know what's going to happen, but that'd be that'd be so awesome. <laughs> we will see. Yeah, for sure. She can she can grow up and and be taught under Sarah's tutelage at the. There you go. At the detective agency. Um, and then one last thing. Uh, Sarah, who wrote in about the uh, the microscopes at one point, um, with a very detailed explanation of the microscopes, uh, which we greatly appreciated, did say that she was going to send some thoughts in, but unfortunately I, I don't think I received any email from her. So apologies that we did not get that. But uh, still write in. We'd love to know your thoughts, and uh, maybe we can email back any any other thoughts about it. But... We may record a uh, a very brief, uh, not nearly as professional sounding review of our egg cream. So yes. we maybe could tack something onto that. Yes. Um, but thank you to everybody who listened this season. We greatly appreciate it. We're here for you. You're the reason that we do this. And, uh, and uh, we are very happy that there are people that find our sometimes derailed conversations about this show uh very useful and and helpful um so thank you very much for listening our friend tim also is six episodes into this eight episode season and said that he finds our show very helpful and that was very nice of him to say so that is tim tim read the first book but not the second so he he watched he read the first book watched the first episode of season one and then jumped to season that's two. That's right. <laughs> you made the right call, probably. I think so. Yeah. I think he'll be He could right. go back and watch it if he really felt like it. I, I, yeah. I kind of want to rewatch it, so uh, it'll... We probably... should just make a uh, a Ted Levine supercut of the season four. Ah, there you go. The Ted Levine cut. Yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, other than that, uh, like the only other question that I had that I wanted to ask you, obviously we both have kind of talked a little bit about season three. We think it could be quite interesting. We might, uh, you know, we'll certainly check it out if it does come to fruition, uh, regardless of whatever shape it takes legal battle or not. Um, but, uh, how did you, how do you end up feeling about the accelerated schedule of the show in the end? I, I think I liked it. I think it was, I think it was more of a good thing than a bad thing. Yeah, I think I agree. I think I don't know how much they planned for it, but it felt very natural with the ways that the two episodes would kind of group together. Yeah. And so um I think overall I think it worked out very well and uh and just kind of it felt a little bit more like a like a mini series or something like that of just like we're going to hit you with more of it more quickly than normal and and I liked it quite a bit. Yeah, me too. It wasn't it wasn't like a four night event, but it was still like 
you know, four weeks. And I felt like even though we had some marathon podcasting sessions each week, I think it worked out pretty well and we got through it. And hopefully people enjoyed the the second episode of the night just as much as they did the first, even though sometimes our energy levels didn't quite make it as high. Yeah. But, um, it was it was sort of a necessary uh, way to view the show, given the the pandemic and uh, everything that's going on. It ended up making a lot of sense. So, uh, yeah, I ultimately pretty pretty glad that it went down that way. I think that you know this this community of uh, of people who are listening and who are writing in. You know, we we've heard from some people that we've been hearing from for a couple of years now from this show and from other shows. We've heard from so many new people this season. It's really encouraging. And uh, I was just trying to think of a way that we could continue to to talk with people aside from like our Discord or or whatever. But I feel like there's a show coming on the horizon that we have not talked about yet, Alex and I, that might make sense for the two of us to tackle. Uh, mm. Something that's coming down the pipeline, I believe, later this year. And, uh, you know, that's the thing. Early in these seasons when we're recording, it be- it's difficult and it's hard to find the time and it's hard to make the time to watch the series, watch it with enough coherence to be able to talk about it with any real authority or understanding. And then <laughs> yeah. also to record the episodes. You know, it is it is fun and it is a good hobby that we get to do, but it does get taxing sometimes. But as we draw nearer and nearer to the end of it, that's when I find myself getting sad. And I think like, well, what what are we going to do next? Because we've we have jumped from so we've done so many different shows together and we've done so many different yeah. movies in like the four or five years before that. So there is one coming that I think we'll have to talk about and see if it makes yeah. sense. I mean, in terms of um, the shows that we do do, Preacher is, is finished. So it's not like there's going to be more of that to watch. Westworld is likely done for at least another year and a half if not two right yeah um and this show is also kind of in a limbo where it could still be another two years as well if there's more of it so uh clearly there there might we might need to um to to find another thing to talk about and if we do we will certainly try to i can throw little primer episodes in these other feeds so that people will We'll hear about it. You can make sure you follow me on Twitter. There's also, we have a Facebook for the Midwest Podcast Network where I would post about that kind of thing as well. So And an Instagram. Uh, yep, and an Instagram as well. So please uh, make sure you take a look at some of the links on our on our website at thealienist.tv and you can kind of keep up with us in that respect. Or, of course, come to our Patreon. Even if you just, um, I think you can follow the Patreon without paying. You can also just give us a dollar a month. And I promise you that that dollar would be greatly appreciated. Um, uh, you know, you can keep in touch with us there. And then as Nick said, the discord as well, if you pledge at the level of $5 per month, you can have pretty much instantaneous, uh, discussion with me and often, uh, pretty rapid discussion with the other hosts on the network. And so, uh, we we like to keep in contact with those of you who uh, who like us and appreciate our work. So yeah, stay tuned for what may come next. This show in particular has been very special, uh, just because it was a it was a story that I wanted to see adapted since I was probably like twelve or thirteen years old and never thought it necessarily would after a time, and then it did. And not only did 
I get to watch and enjoy the adaptation, but I got to record these shows with Alex and share them with somebody who hadn't read the book and got to experience it. But also, you know, this is, you know, Preacher has a big fan base. The comic existed for a long time and Mm -hmm. there's places to talk to talk with people about that story easily. And you can go to any comic shop and walk in and say, you want to talk about Preacher and somebody's probably going to bitch about the ending to you. And, uh, (laughs) you know, Westworld has its own giant following and, uh, but Alienist, it's not really out there, you know, aside from that, that 17th street or whatever that website I talked about, that's really the only thing I've ever found on the internet. There is a subreddit, but it's very small and it's mostly now just about the show. And, uh, so this has been really cool and, and really special. And I, if you had told me back then when I was reading the Alienist and the Angel of Darkness that I was going to get to find a small community of people in the future to talk to about these stories, I wouldn't have, uh, I don't know that I would have believed it or imagined it would be as fun as it has been. So yeah. thank you everyone who has, who has written in and who is also out there reading the books and, and taking the, the, the journey and the time to, uh, share your thoughts. It's, uh, it means a lot. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. I, I co-sign all of that, uh, uh, quite as well to the extent that I can, you know, as somebody who did not read the book, but, um, it, it has been nice to kind of foster this little community and find a, a good group of people to discuss and watch and and uh, and have listened to our stuff. So it's fantastic, and, and I greatly appreciate it, too. But I think that's it until potentially a season three. So let me go through all the stuff that you hear at the end normally. Once again, you can find more episodes of our podcast on TheAlienist.tv We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and Google Podcasts. You can email us at feedback at thealienist.tv to tell us what you think of our podcast and share your thoughts on TNT's The Alienist so we can read them on our show. Send us corrections, observations, or anything regarding The Alienist or our podcast. The Midwest Podcast Network has other shows about video games, horror movies, HBO's Westworld, and AMC's Preacher. Find more about these shows, as well as how to support the network at MidwestPodcastNetwork.com. Our theme song is the song Division by Kevin MacLeod, and it is being used under an Attribution Creative Commons license. And that's all for this episode and this season of The Alienist Recap. We can't wait to see if TNT makes a third season of The Alienist, but until then, we'll see you at the chalk.